Moving on. Here we go. Today is part 20 in our Matthew series, and I entitled the message King of the Hill. It has nothing to do with the show, all right? It has to do with the old game of King of the Mountain, kind of knocking somebody else off, and who's the, who's the big dog? And we're going to be talking a little bit about the religious leaders uh, challenging Jesus. And what is so key about this message today is this is going to set up next week. Not only is it going to set up the crucifixion, but it's going to set up next week. And next week is going to be the most blistering, brutal assault, verbal assault Jesus ever does in all of Scripture. He is going to lay into the religious leaders of the time, and it's going to be pretty shocking. And all that is set up because of the firing back and forth and the battles that are going to go on that we're going to read here in chapter 22. So I wanted to begin with a concept that starts with a quote. So at the top of your page in your handout is a quote by King and Blackaby. Just a quick show of hands. How many of you have done the Bible study experiencing God? Anybody ever done that? Probably a good amount of you. Okay. Um, I, that's been around for at least a decade, and I remember doing it a number of years ago. And as a matter of fact, I taught a little portion of their material from the pulpit, which I never do. Uh, I just felt like it was very useful. Kind of a neat study. It was a little bit more edgy and new when it first came out. Now it's kind of a little bit of an older study, but still brilliant. But they have a couple themes that track through their book, and this is one of them. I used it as a quote to kind of lead us into our topic today. It's this. You cannot stay where you are and go with God. You look at that and you kind of go, well, no kidding, of course. All right, look at your own life. You cannot stay where you are and go with God. They went on to say you cannot continue doing things your way and accomplish God's purposes in his ways. It's just not going to happen. You're not God. You don't have the same exact plans as God. You don't have the same perspective as God. So no, you're not going to be thinking the exact same things. You've got to do it his way. You can't keep doing things your way your whole life and expect to pretend that you are following after God's footsteps. That's just not true. And so I want to kind of talk about the areas that we're still battling with Jesus in our lives. All right. Um, think about we talk about ourselves in percentages. We say things like, uh, man, I'm like 90 percent sold out. You're like, what What did you just say? Did you say you're 10% rebellious? Is that what I just heard? What are you talking about? Well, I'm like 70, like 25% of my life, I'm still wrestling with handing over to the Lord, but I'm like almost there. And we keep saying percentages. Here's a fill in the blank in front of you to kind of say it as simply as I could think of. Continued conflict is a sign of no surrender. Okay? Continued conflict. As long as you're still fighting, you're not surrendered. When you throw up the white flag, it means... I give up. I'm done fighting. Okay? So let's say, for example, we are all warring against someone else. All right? Just because uh, it's funny and it sounds funny saying it from the pulpit. Let's say we're fighting another church. Okay? So we're now in battle against another church. And we all of a sudden say, all right, we're going to have a ceasefire. And the other church says, all right, we give up. We throw up our white flag of surrender. And then in comes a rocket. Blows up something, right? And I'm like, wait, I thought you guys surrendered. We have totally surrendered. And here comes another rocket. You're like, no, you have not. Well, they're like, well, you know what? They're not listening to us right now. That's just a part of our church that's bombing you. And you're like, well, hold on a second. Either you guys have surrendered or you haven't surrendered. You can't keep launching rockets at us if you've surrendered. 
And they're like, no, we are totally surrendered. And here comes another rocket. Okay, it doesn't fly. Either you surrender or you don't surrender. As long as there's continued conflict, there is no surrender. Why do we keep doing that with Jesus? Well, there's this one area in my life. There's this tiny little area. It's like a closet in my life. When we try to use something small that's descriptive, it's like a little tiny refrigerator. It's like in the, the den. And you're like, what are you talking about? It's still an area where God doesn't have access. Well, it's padlocked and it's this. And I haven't quite given Jesus the key. And we're using all these analogies, right? Okay. So you haven't surrendered. No, I totally like 98% surrendered. You're like, no, you haven't. We have to think through this kind of stuff to make this applicable in our lives. Because all of a sudden you're going to watch these people fight with Jesus. And you go, by how, that's so silly. Why would anyone have conflict with Jesus? Don't they know what they're doing? Don't they realize there's no point in arguing with God? Okay, why are we doing it? We know better than they do. They don't even believe he's the Messiah. We do. And we're still arguing with him. How silly does that sound? So if we're going to read through this, we can either read this as a story about how Jesus is arguing with other leaders and we can point our finger at them or we can turn it around and look and realize we're staring in a mirror. This kind of stuff is going on in our life all the time. I know it's going on in mine. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, verse 1? Matthew 22, verse 1, page 699 in the Bible's handed to you, 699. That should help you follow along. And as I normally do... I usually include the other accounts of the Gospels. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all end up talking about similar stories. And... But when it came to this first parable in Matthew, the parable of the wedding banquet, I looked at the parallel passage in Luke chapter 14. And what I realized was, even though they're very similar in nature and clearly talking about the same material, they're not the exact same story. And I felt like I would be pulling one out of context to combine them. So what we're going to do is read through Matthew's account kind of halfway. Then we will stop about where Luke is trying to focus on. And then we'll read the Luke portion and then go back to Matthew. So before we begin in reading this, would you pray with me for the word? Heavenly Father, we sit here in awe that you would even share your thoughts and your knowledge with us, at least a portion of it, that you would reveal your kingdom to us in words like these. And we ask, Lord, that you would open up our hearts and our minds to receive what you're about to say. We believe that they are spiritually discerned. Therefore, we need you to reveal it to us. We also know, Lord, that there needs to be space carved out in our hearts, carved out of selfishness, carved out of hardness for a place for this new word that we're about to receive resides, a place where it can be planted, where it can grow and that we can become different people. Would you allow us to transform by your power? In Jesus name we pray. Amen. It begins like this. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I prepared my dinner, my oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything's ready. Come to the banquet. All right, let's pause right there. In order to understand any of this story, and literally, if you go read this parable on your own, you're going to get totally confused. How do I know that? Because when I read it on my own, I got totally confused. Okay. 
it's very hard to understand unless you understand the customs of the time. We're 2,000 years removed from this environment. We're on a totally different continent. We're reading it in a different language. And so sometimes we get a little bit lost as to what they're talking about. And this is a pretty rough parable to get lost in. Well, first of all, let's understand how they do big banquets, big receptions, big weddings, big invitations. The first thing that we need to understand is the way they would do it is they would send out invitations a long time before the event, but without a date on it. They would say, I'm going to throw this huge bash. Be ready, because then I'm going to let you know when it's going to happen. And they wouldn't give you a date to set aside on your calendar. It was basically the kind of a notification that something was going to happen. Then, once everything was ready and prepared, they would fire out their servants to go out and say, and it's time, let's go everybody, let's go to a party. The other thing you need to remember is that weddings are no small affair in this world. They are a big deal. There are days and days on end. This is bring everybody, bring the presents like us. A lot of us avoid weddings because we're bored to death at them. And they're only about three hours long and we still avoid them. So these people had a real hard time with the idea that, oh, what? Now I'm supposed to just jump up and go to your wedding or go to your banquet. Maybe I got other stuff to do. I mean, I got I can't just cut out a day or a week out of my events. I can't just cut out of business. And they had a bunch of reasons why they wouldn't want to go, because you're going to see a lot of resistance to this banquet. It didn't mean they didn't like the guy. It meant that real life was going on. It was hard to just set everything aside. But now he sent out his servants and he told everyone, everything's ready. Let's go, go, go. Come on in. We're going to go have a big banquet. But then what happened? Verse 5, but they paid no attention, and they went off to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. You're like, what? what? Well, you don't just kill wedding invitation guys. That's just not nice. You know, so, all right, the minute you're starting to slay people, we're clearly not talking about wedding invitations anymore. You now automatically go, oh, okay, it's a parable. Let me remember that. We're not talking about just wedding invitations as a matter of fact, if you were here last week or downloaded that podcast, you'll remember Jesus has already told two parable, parables against the nation of Israel. One of them, the parable of the tenants, you guys remember that, where a guy set up his vineyard and his field and everything, and then he went away for a long time and he came back with his servants. They were supposed to get fruit from the harvest, and they ended up mistreating him and eventually killing him. Do you remember all that? Okay, same point being made in this parable. We're talking about the nation of Israel, the responsibility they were given, and how they treated God's people throughout history. What have they done with the prophets and the people of God throughout history? They've killed them, they mistreated them, they stoned them, whatever you want to say. That's what we're talking about now. Because it seems so random that all of a sudden somebody's like, you want to go to my wedding? Ah! And they start attacking and hacking you apart. That doesn't seem normal. All right? But we're not talking about that. We're talking about the fact that throughout history, here's how it went. God created the Jewish people from a man's lineage by the name of Abraham. Right? We all know that. All the Jews came from Abraham. And he designed them as his chosen people for one particular purpose on earth, which is what? I want you to be my people and be almost as a display or a theatrical play of my will on earth. I want you to show the earth what I'm like. 
I want you to tell everybody what I'm like. I want you to read to them what I've said. I want you to be my demonstration on the earth. Well, how'd they do with that? Not so hot. So, periodically, God would send people to remind them that they're lame at it. So, all of a sudden, a prophet shows up and he says, Hey, guys, God just told me that he's really, really mad at you because you're not doing what he asked you to do. Well, they didn't like being told that, and so they would kill him and get rid of him. So then God would send another guy, and he would go, Hey, real quick, when you killed that last guy, that didn't make God any happier. Now he's even more mad at you. Well, I don't want to hear from you. And they'd kill him too. Well, eventually they got in serious trouble and God would kick them out of the land. So this is kind of the, the history that they went through in the Old Testament. This is what he's referring to right here. The Jewish people were the original invitees to the banquet of God as God's chosen people. But whenever he would try to talk to them about what he wanted and how he wanted them to change and do it differently, they would violate and kill his messengers. How do you think God feels about that? Not so hot. That's where we began to see everything get real tense. Now, when they didn't want to go to it, instead of killing him, a lot of them just made what? Excuses. They had a bunch of reasons why they didn't want to go to the banquet. Hey, man, I'm busy. I got business. I'm going to my field. I'm doing this sort of thing. That, I believe, was the main point Luke was trying to say in his gospel account. So can you keep your finger there and turn with me to Luke? Let's go two books to the right. We're in Matthew. We've got to skip over Mark. Hit Luke. Luke chapter 14, verse 16 is where we pick up the story. Luke 14:16. Even though, like I said, they're talking about similar material, when Luke tells it, it's not a wedding banquet, it's just a banquet. And there's a couple other details that are different, so we'll just read them separately. But it says this in Luke 14:16. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make what? Excuses. The first said, hey, I just bought a field and I got to go see it. Please excuse me. Now, I don't know if that's a lame reason or not. It sounds lame because basically, hey, I just bought a bunch of dirt and I got to go stare at my dirt. And you're like, okay, it's still just a field, man. I don't know. You can see it tomorrow. So I don't know if he was saying, no, I really got to go look at it and see what it needs. Do I need to prepare it for harvest? I don't know if this is legitimate or not. The next one. It said, uh, another one said, I just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. So please excuse me. All right. I don't know how you try them out. Maybe he's taking them for a test drive. You kick the hooves. I don't know. You open the doors. I don't know what you do with a bunch of yoke of oxen, but that's what he said. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Uh, and that's pretty legitimate because a marriage in that day was a long of affair. I mean, it was this idea of you do the whole banqueting and feasting and it's days on end. So, I mean, that's pretty, it's pretty legitimate. It says the servant came back and reported this to his master. Basically, no one wants to come to your party. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Pause. If you're a person of compassion, you immediately go, how come they weren't on the list in the first place? That's a totally rude list. Okay, in a parable, it's trying to make a point. The point was, there's something wrong with these people visibly. And you go, well, nothing's wrong with them. They're just as acceptable to God. Okay, do you know what they represent in the story? 
They represent the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Is there anything wrong with us? Well, not technically, but from a Jewish point of view, yeah, there is something wrong with us. We are less than. We're not Jewish. So they would look and they'd go, oh, something's wrong with you. You're like, nothing's wrong with me. And they're like, no, something's wrong with you. He said, all right, bust it open. Break open the doors. We invited the Jews. The Jews refused to accept the Messiah, refused to play along, refused to do what I've asked them to do. Let's break open the door wide open. Go grab Gentiles. Let's open up the door wide to the rest of the world. He said, sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. All right. That's pretty rough. That's pretty harsh on the Jewish people. So the excuses thing was kind of a big deal. Luke wanted to highlight that about Jesus's teaching. Dive back to Matthew there. And I guess as I look at this, I begin to say, what are the excuses that are going on in our lives on why we cannot follow the Lord, when he comes in and he calls us and he asks us to do stuff, we all have a million what we call reasons. Other people call them excuses. Remember, if you make them, they're reasons. If someone else makes them, they're excuses. All right. So we all have these reasons why we're not following the Lord, why we're not submitting to the Lord, why we're not having time with the Lord. And every time I ask you guys, hey, how are you doing spiritually? I literally mean, and when I ask you this, I literally mean, do you love God more? Do you love people more? Because I believe that's the heart of Christianity. But all of you feel this necessary thing to lay out for me all the ways that you're using your time. And so I'll go, hey, how are you doing spiritually? Like, you know what? I'm not reading like I should. And everyone starts going off. I'm like, nobody reads like they should. You know what? I'm really not spending the time in prayer like I should. Okay, you don't have to sit. I'm not a priest. You don't have to confess to me. That's fine. I'm just asking. Do you love God more? Well, I'm just trying to be nice. I'm just a friend of yours. But everybody immediately starts making all these excuses. Man, life has been totally busy and I got this and I got that. All right, but still, your life's going to reflect a certain level of priority. So I don't know how much your excuses or your reasons will hold for very long. My reasons and excuses are pretty lame. We move back into the Matthew story, back in verse 5. Let's scoot back a little bit, Matthew 22, 5. Remember, he sends them out with his invitation. It says, but they paid no attention. They went off one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. Verse seven, the king was enraged. Remember, if a king says something, you're supposed to do it. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. This is all over a wedding invitation, right? Okay. There's something specific about that statement. It's prophetic. Now, what's weird about Matthew writing it, and it all depends on when Matthew wrote, but when Jesus said it, it was future tense, meaning, and he's going to do this. Here's what I mean. Jesus said these words around A.D. 33, 34. Well, some scholars believe that Matthew wrote around A.D. 80 to 90. What happened between those two dates? A.D. 70. What happened in A.D. 70? Rome sieged and sacked Jerusalem and tore it apart and destroyed the temple and it's never been rebuilt. Okay, so a major event occurred before Matthew wrote it, after Jesus said it. What is Matthew trying to say? He warned you. He said it very clearly in his parable. When you reject the invitation of the Messiah, when you reject and kill the very son of the king, 
He will become enraged and he will come in and tear down your city. He let you know that because Matthew has already seen it happen. All right. Does that make sense? All right. We move forward. Verse eight. Then he said to his servants, the king said, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Meaning they did not respond to my kindness. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. All right, that's a general gospel goes out into the world. Everybody gets an opportunity to hear a bunch of this stuff. And then what? Verse 11. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there that was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how'd you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless, and the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are invited, but few are chosen. Dang, this is a brutal wedding. I mean, it's kind of like, what are you wearing? Nothing? Yeah, they get thrown off, and there's gnashing. I mean, Matthew's big on gnashing, right? And you're like, why, why is he hurting everybody? What is wrong with this place? Just because you're not wearing the right clothes. What if the guy couldn't afford the clothes? What about this? What about that? There's a major element we're missing. And one of the major elements is that most likely this scenario was very similar to the common parables of the day. The more research I did, the more I realized in Jesus' day, rabbis were constantly telling stories about wedding banquets or about getting royal robes or about doing this and having to be ready for a special occasion. They were all over the place. So everybody's mind began to go all over the place. They go, oh, I know this story. But one of the main things that we're missing here that we don't realize is that when a really wealthy guy throws a party, especially a wedding party, guess what? For every guest, he provides your clothes. He gives you wedding clothes. Why? It's part of setting the atmosphere. He provides everybody with brand new clothes so that when they walk in, everybody's dressed and ready because they can't use the excuse. I don't got anything to wear. He's like, I just gave you something to wear. In other words, this guy's not dressed right because the guy doesn't want to be dressed right. This has nothing to do with an inability to be dressed. This has nothing to do. Why? Because he wasn't even responsible for his clothes. They've been given to him. They were at the door. When you start bringing all these people, you're like, he didn't have time to change. Right there, they're supposed to be handed to him to allow them to come in and give them clothing. This is rejected provision. You understand what's going down now? Now, all of a sudden, this is about responsibility. This is about a free gift offered to prep him for the wedding. And what did he say? That's fine. I'll just wear what I have on. Oh, no, you're not. See, now we've entered America, right? Let me ask you this. We do a poll in America. How many people say they're going to heaven? What percentage? That's right, 100%. Everybody thinks they're going to heaven in America. Nobody ever checks the box. No, I'm pretty sure eternal torment is where I'm headed. And I'm all right with that. Okay, nobody checks that box. Everybody checks I'm going to heaven box. Then you go, really? How are you going to get there? I don't know. I guess I'll see when I get there. Really? Because I don't think that's going to fly. Because there's actually restrictions on it. As a matter of fact, getting into heaven, you've got to wear the right clothes. And there's only one guy doling them out, and he's called the Messiah. 
Have you got your clothes from the Messiah? Because you ain't getting in without them. No, 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 what I'm wearing is fine. No, what you're wearing isn't fine. Let me ask you a little bit of thing on that. In the Old Testament, there's a vision that one of the prophets had, and it was, it was up in heaven, and there was the high priest, his name was Joshua at the time. He ends up, he has all these stained clothes and a turban, and God said, remove the stained clothes and give him bright, shining white clothes and a brand new turban. Okay, so I got a question for you. How come every time the Bible talks about heaven people, everyone's wearing white? Is it because God's totally into white and he wants everyone to coordinate? Is that why? It's kind of like, well, nothing goes with a heart better than white, okay? Is that, what is the deal with white clothes? White represents what? Purity sinlessness it's making a point it's saying if you are in the presence of god you needed to be cleansed to be in the presence of god white clothes new clothes you're going to hear that all throughout the bible take off the old man put on the new man take off the old clothes put on the new clothes you will constantly hear the idea even the concept of baptism means to be immersed in the same word is used for dyeing things and making them a different color you will hear things like although it was uh, stained as scarlet it became what white as snow over and over and over you hear this idea of cleansing is necessary are clothes important yeah for what they represent that's why it's key it's not the clothes themselves god doesn't care what you're literally wearing but they represent a cleansing that is necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven and they're only handed out by the Messiah. That's why it's so important. No, you do not just walk up to heaven in what you're wearing and assume everything's cool. Everything's not cool. We move on to the next story. And in this story, we're going to be picking up in verse 15. Uh, Mark and Luke comment on this story. So wherever I deviate from the Matthew account, that's, of course, who I'm quoting is one of the two. Then the Pharisees went out and keeping a close watch on Jesus laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples spies to him along with the Herodians who pretended to be honest. All right. So they're not honest, but they pretended to be honest. That's nice. So who are these two groups of people? Pharisees were very familiar with. Who are those guys? Hardcore law do everything to a T. I got to look good on the outside. I'm the religious leader of the time. Everybody respects me. I'm the big dog around Jerusalem. I do everything right. And I'm smug, self-righteous guy, right? That's the Pharisees of the time. Very strict adherence to the idea of Jews only. Very strict adherence to what the Bible says in the Old Testament is true. Okay. They're hanging out with who now? The Herodians. Who are the Herodians? Those are guys that would agree to the leadership under the king Herods. That's where you get the word Herodian, right? So are there many Herods? Yeah, Herod is actually a title. It's almost like Caesar. You know, there's many Caesars. Well, same thing. There's Herod Agrippa, Herod the Great, a bunch of different Herods. Herod is a title. And what Herods, what the Herod lineage basically did is they were the go-betweens between the Jewish people and the Roman Empire. They were the kind of, can't we all just get along? We'll do the kind of Rome gig and I'll keep the Jewish people under control and I'll be your man and I'll take kickbacks from you. That's basically who the Herods were. 
Well, the Herodians bought into that. They said, all right, let's just get along with Rome. Let's just do this thing. It's not a big deal. Let's accept Caesar is our king and move forward. Okay, Pharisees are not okay with that. They were like, what'd you just say? No, no, no. We have one king. It's Yahweh. That's it. Don't you dare say anything about Rome. I don't want to hear anything about Caesar. He is not the king. And I'm waiting for the day that we rise up and break off the yoke of this Rome. They never get along. They fight constantly. The only time they get along is when? When they want to go beat up Jesus. It's the only time they get along. So they represent two factions. If they come to Jesus together, what can they force him to do? Take sides. You're either going to make one whole side angry or make the other side angry. So that's what they're going to try to do. It says they hope to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, they said, we know you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God and speak what is right in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men and you do not show partiality because you pay no attention to who they are. So tell us then, what is your opinion? What's that called? Kissing up. Okay? Everyone good on that one? That was schmoozing. Okay? They're trying to butter him up to knife him in the back. They said, tell us your opinion. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Mark says. Pretty darn good dilemma. Uh, you got to give credit where credit is due, and they're pretty good at this stuff. What is basically his only two options of answers? Yes, you should pay taxes, which means what? You have now sided with the Herodians and you believe in the authority of Rome and all the Jews hate you. Or, no, do not pay taxes to Caesar because he's not a rightful king and now all of Rome is breathing down your neck. Right? So either way, they win. Because somebody's going to hate Jesus more. Well, how did Jesus handle this? It says this, But Jesus, knowing their evil intent and hypocrisy, saw through their duplicity, Mark said, and said to them, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? In other words, you little kiss-ups, you know what you're trying to do. Everybody can see it, so let's throw it out on the table. You're trying to trap me. Now, is it going to work or not? Here's my answer. Show me the denarius coin used for paying the tax and let me look at it. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose portrait is this? Whose picture is this? Whose image is on this coin? And whose inscription? Okay, a couple things. Number one, Caesar Tiberius minted a bunch of coins with his picture on them. That's pretty cocky, first of all. But the inscription on the other side of it says this, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. What's divine mean? God. Now we have a whole other problem. Now we have a coin that says Caesar is God. Okay, so what's Jesus going to do with that? So Jesus grabs a coin, holds it up, and he says, I see what it says, and I know whose picture is on it. Do you? So he holds it up. Whose picture is on this? Whose image is this? Caesar's, they replied. He looked at him, he said, then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, to God what is God's. Flips the coin back to him, and it says, when they heard this, they became silent. They were amazed and astonished by his answer. They were unable to trap him in what he said there in public, so they left him and went away. What did he say that was so amazing? Did you guys see it? Here's what he said. Hey, here's some cash. Whose picture's on it? Whose image is on it? Caesar's? 
Give him cash. What do I care? It's money. Flips it back to him. He wants cash? Give him cash. But let me ask you this. Whose image is on your heart? Man is made in the image of who? God. Then you better give all of it to God. The idea was, fine, give Caesar money, just give God all of you. That's a powerful way to answer why. He just went deeper than anyone have ever assumed. They never thought he would go there. He literally just said, fine, I'll honor Rome with my cash. What do I care about money? But you know what's more important? Your heart. The all of you, your whole being is stamped with the image of God. If you give to Caesar what's on his image, give to God what is his image. Give him all of you. And at that point, now all of a sudden the Pharisees had to be quiet. The Herodians had to be quiet. Nobody had a word to say. They were like, dang, he got out of that one, right? So someone else comes to an attack. It says this, that same day, some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him with a question okay who are the sadducees they were another sect of jews and they battled with the pharisees all the time over what basically everything they're a political party and they didn't believe in afterlife they didn't believe in supernatural they only believed in the first five books of the bible for only one key reason who wrote them Moses. Moses is their big guy. He's the only one they focus on. But when you read the first five books of the Bible, which are what? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. When you read those first five books, how much does it talk about heaven? It doesn't. So they said it doesn't exist. If it's not in the first five books of the Bible, it doesn't exist. We only believe Moses. So they had this whole belief system that was only mosaic in nature. They refused to believe anything else. So they would argue with the Pharisees. The Pharisees would say, well, no, no, no. Somebody rises from the dead. They're like, there's no resurrection of the dead. Come on. Let's be basic about this. No, there is only the life right here and now. And whether we live in honor to God or not, that's it. So they would always battle with the Pharisees. Once again, the only time they get along with the Pharisees is to trap Jesus. So now the Sadducees come walking up and they have a question about this resurrection that they don't believe in. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Anybody creeped out by that? Like you just run that scenario in your mind right now. Okay, gross. Okay, here's the thing. Deuteronomy 25, 5 and following literally says a law on the books, which is what? Just that. So in my life, it would work like this. I'm the third of three kids. I got an older brother who's eight years older than me. I got a sister who's four years older than me and then me. If my brother married his wife and then he dies before they have kids, his family line will stop. Are we all clear on that? Okay. Major importance to Jews, family line, land ownership. Those two things are huge. So it's a dishonor if your family line stops. So it is my job as the younger brother to, in addition to my wife, take his wife and keep his family line going. Doesn't benefit me at all. All of that lineage still carries on his name. Doesn't matter if I'm the dad. So all that keeps going. And it's my responsibility to never let that family shut down. Now, a bunch of guys didn't want to do that. That's why it's a law on the books. I don't blame them, right? But they didn't want to do that. As a matter of fact, there's some Old Testament stories about guys who were avoiding doing this. And what did God do? He killed them. He said, don't you dare 
be selfish and shut down your brother's family line. So this is a big deal in the Old Testament. And so they walked up and said, all right, we only believe Moses. So we're going to talk about Moses and we're going to say Moses told us that we had a leveret law. Levere in Hebrew means uh, brother-in-law. That's basically what leveret comes from. All right. So now they go, let me explain to you how embarrassingly absurd the idea of resurrection sounds, Jesus, with a little scenario. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. Well, the same thing happened to the second, then the third, right on down to the seventh. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Finally, last of all, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection... Whose wife will she be of the seven since all of them were married to her? Okay, they don't care about who she's married to. What's their point? Gosh, Jesus, doesn't this whole thing sound a little bit ridiculous? Really? Now she's married to seven guys. What's she? Oh my gosh, it's busy heaven, right? They're trying to make fun of the whole idea and trying to say, listen, there is no resurrection. So what does Jesus say? Jesus replied, well, first of all, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. So there. So his first thing is what? You're in error because you don't know your Bible. Now, that's a huge insult for guys that memorize the first five books of the Bible. And they only have five, so they're pretty good at them. And they're like, what are you talking about? We don't know the scriptures. Of course we know the scriptures. We know it backwards and forwards. He said, and your concept of God is too small. You really don't think that God can raise people from the dead. You really don't think there's an afterlife. Come on. Quit thinking that. Are you that inept? No. He said, Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But in the resurrection, when those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead, when they rise, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage and they can no longer die. They will be like the angels in heaven. So what did he just say? He said, as a matter of fact, not only is there a resurrection, but let me tell you how it's going to go down. Here in this world, we get married, right? It's just part of our culture. It's how we do things in heaven. We're entering a brand new reality and that no longer applies. We will be like the angels. Now, there's two things we know about angels. Number one, they don't die. Number two, they don't have children. There's not more angels being born. Are we all clear on that? Everybody seems to be, yeah, absolutely. There's no more angels being born. Angels aren't having sex with other angels and there's no angels being born. He said, so no, that's not how it's going to be. We're going to be just like the angels. Which, by the way, that seems to blow out of the water certain doctrines that teach about being married for eternity. And having children for eternity, Jesus just blew them both out of the water. So I'm not so sure how they hang on to that view. But anyway, it says what? He said, and I love this, they are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. But about the resurrection of the dead, in other words, and while we're talking about what you're ignorant about, have you not read what God said to you in the book of Moses? Okay. In other words, let's talk about your buddy. Moses, even Moses showed that the dead rise in the account of the bush. God said to him, let's stop. What bush? The burning bush. God said, Exodus three, six, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Stop. Question for you. Why in the world? Well, let me ask it this way. Where is Abraham, Isaac and Jacob when God is talking to Moses? Where are they? They're all dead, right? 
then why is he talking in the present tense? Why is God talking in present? Why doesn't he say, I used to be the God of Abraham. I used to be the God of Isaac. I used to be the God of Jacob. Because he doesn't see it that way. It's very present tense. Why? Because they're still alive. So he said, oh, did you miss that in the story? Oh, you read so much Moses. Maybe you missed that one. No, no, no. You see, Moses clearly recorded when God talked in the present tense about dead guys. So guess what? He said this. They, uh, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken, for to him all are alive. When the crowd heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. <laughs> okay. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. So at that point, he basically shut down those guys. Oh, but there's more. So more people come in for an attack. We pick it up in verse 34. Mark also includes this, and here's how he started it. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, and hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, tested him with this question. All right, a couple things that we need to know. Number one, if we only read Mark's account, this looks like a good guy. He looks like he really wants to know. If you read Matthew, he kind of looks a little bit more snake-like, and you're like, mm, I don't know if you're into this or not. Um, the other thing that we need to understand is that the expert in the law is a Pharisee, but he's just that. What is he an expert in? The law. He knows this stuff inside and out. So he's going to ask him a law question. Okay? So here comes the question. Teacher, of all the commandments, which is the greatest commandment? Which is the most important in the law? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And he quoted Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. What is that called when the Jews repeat it three times a day? The Shema. A good Jew, an Orthodox Jew, repeats in morning, noon, and night that scripture over and over and over. They do it to this day. They will always repeat the Shema. He said that is the most important commandment. This is the first and greatest commandment, Jesus said. Now, let me ask you this. How can one commandment be more important than other commandments? If they're all God's opinion, how can one be more important? Well, because of the trickle-down effect. If you get that one right, it realigns everything else. If you truly love God with all of your being, then aren't you going to obey in everything else? I mean, that's kind of the idea. But he said, that's fine to handle the relationship with God, but what about your relationship with people? So he adds this. And the second, most important, is like it. And he quotes Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Okay, a couple things that are really amazing about that. Number one, if you ever find yourself debating and discussing and getting really really deep into biblical stuff and you end up finding yourself in a little corner weeping in the fetal position somewhere because you can't remember what in the world you believe anymore okay please go back to basics what are the basics it all hinges on two commands loving god with everything you have and loving your neighbor as yourself if we can get those right everything falls in line 
So let's keep it a bit more simple. That's why I said when I ask you, hey, how are you doing spiritually? What do I mean? Are you loving God more? Are you loving people more? For all of Christianity is bound up in that. As a matter of fact, he then said the second cool thing, in my opinion. He said all of the Old Testament, when he said the law and the prophets, that includes all of the Old Testament. Because the only thing it's missing is the wisdom literature, which many consider to be prophetic. So the law and the prophets combined together make up the whole Old Testament. He said all of it hangs On these two things. Now, I don't know where I heard this, where I saw it. I don't know if it was a t-shirt. I don't know if it was a cartoon. I don't know if it was in a book. But I will never forget the image where it had the law and the prophets hanging on a rope, hanging on a nail in the cross. I never forgot that. It was like the nails that were driven through Jesus' hands and feet. All the law and the prophets hung, literally, on that nail. And I went, wow, Jesus is what all of Scripture is about. All the Old Testament preps for him, all the New Testament explains him. And I went, wow, what a powerful visual. Maybe that helps you. Now listen to what Mark says. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus heard that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. From then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Okay, which means usually till the next time. What did he just say? He said, Man, kid, I think you're getting it. I think you're getting it. That's amazing. You're absolutely right. Now you're tracking with me. You're almost there, and where does it all lead? It all leads to me. That's really what I'm trying to get you to, okay? So you're really near the kingdom of God. Just take that extra step, all right? And then Jesus has a question for them. So they've been battering him with questions. Now, this question is about to set up his tirade next week. But here's his question for them. He said, you've been asking me all day long. i got a question for you. We pick it up in verse 41. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts and the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, I believe that this question means this. What do you think of the Messiah? Because you and I obviously have differing opinions as to who the Messiah is. So if you're going to tell me who he is, what's he like? Whose son is he? Where does he come from? That's the questions he's asking. They had an easy response. Son of David, they replied. Why did they answer so quickly? Well, because everybody knew, all good Jews knew, that their greatest king... Now remember, the monarchy period when the Israel had one king was only under three kings. It was a very short time in history. Saul, David, and David's son, Solomon. Those were the three big dog kings of Israel's history. That was their golden age. And the biggest of the big dogs was David. He was a huge deal, and he received the prophecy from God himself that said, when the Deliverer comes, when the Messiah comes, he will come through your lineage and sit on your throne forever. Well, everybody knew he comes through David's lineage. So they automatically responded, and they said, oh, he's going to be a a son of David. Now, what they implied was, perhaps, he's just a man. You go, what are you talking about? 
we look at things from a very different mindset as Gentiles and as modern-day folks. Whenever we say the word Messiah, we think divine. To a Jew, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. Why? Because deliverers have always been human. What was Moses called when he brought the people out of Egypt? A deliverer. What was Samson called and the other judges when they delivered Israel? Deliverer. As you keep tracking through, you begin to go, wait a second, they've been naming guys as deliverers. So you know what? This Messiah is just going to be another guy, human guy, that's going to raise up and restore Israel back to the glory that they once had. He said, you sure about that? You sure he's just a guy? Because I don't, I don't think David saw it that way. And he begins to mess with their mind about it. Watch this. He said to them, how is it that the teachers of the law say that Christ is the son of David? For David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord. He goes, huh, that's weird. What's Lord mean? Master, why would you call a human ancestor of yours master in the present tense? What? You can't do that. You're long dead by the time that earthly guy shows up. So who do you think it is? Because, gosh, the only one that would be alive during his life and later would be divine. Hmm. For he declared in the book of Psalms, and he quotes Psalm 110.1, the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. The quote says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus said, If David himself calls him Lord, how can he be his son? The large crowd listened with delight. No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. What's so impressive about that? He said, gosh, I sure think that David thought he was eternal. When David talked about the Messiah, he knew he was more than a man. Do you know he's more than a man? Because I'm about to blow your minds When you guys hear me say a phrase like, before Abraham was, I am. Do you remember that? Before Abraham was, I am. Where that's where Jesus went back and he said, don't you understand? I set all that into motion. I'm the one David's talking about. I was there. I was the one that was in the burning bush going, hey, check this out. I was there. It was me. I'm the one that's sending all this stuff off. Don't you get it? No, the Messiah is not just a guy. He's a God man. And it's me. All of this is filtering around and the guys just can't seem to grasp it. They don't get it. And here they are battling with the Messiah. So I leave you with this challenge. Why are you asking the questions that you're asking of God? We all got them, right? Got a million questions. But there's two ways to ask questions. One is to gain information, right? So let's say Will's sitting here in the front, and I want to ask Will a question. And I want information. I'm going to ask him what? I'm going to say, hey, Will, what time is it? And he's going to say, you're way over time. It's time to stop preaching because we're late, okay? So he gives me the time. I'm actually looking for information. That is a good question to ask. But if I ask Will a question like this, Will, what's it to you if I go long? Am I asking a question to receive any information? No, I'm making a statement. What's a statement? Will back off and leave me alone. See, you can ask a question and put up an obstacle. You can ask a question 
to try to shut someone up. You can ask a question and not want any new information. You want to say something. So I ask you this. What are the questions in your heart? You got questions to Jesus kind of like, until you answer why my sister died, I will not love you. Is that really a question? I don't think that's a question. I think the, that's the I'm hurt, I'm scared, I'm frustrated, and I don't want you getting next to me. I think that's more what you just said. If you say things like, hey, until you figure out this whole creation, how the Big Bang thing kind of worked out, I'm not moving, I'm not jumping over science, sorry, buddy. Is that a question? Does God have to answer to you? Does he need to give you information? Is that really what you're looking for? Do you honestly want to know? Or are you trying to tell him he's not the boss of you? When you ask a question, do you want to know anything? Because literally, if you want to know answers, ask away. I believe it's a responsibility of every Christian to tear apart the scriptures, to search out their God, to try to know who he is, to try to know what he's like. How are you going to love someone you don't know? Of course you should ask questions as long as you want to know the answers. But when you're just throwing out questions to push him further away, I don't think we're moving forward. So what questions are you asking? Because it looks really silly when they do it. What about you? What about me? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for walking through your word together. And Lord, we consider this an awesome opportunity to be together as a team and begin to look at this stuff. Lord, it's like you get a chance to teach us personally right out of your word. Where we get to a chance to open up and read these words that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you let these guys know. What I see, Jesus, I've fallen in love with. I ask, Lord, that for all those here today that want to know, would you meet them where they're at? Would you guide them into truth? And for all the rest of us that are just hard in heart and we want you to back up, would you show us what it looks like to surrender? Would that we might be the children that you desire? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.